This week on Excelsior Journeys, my guest is multi-award winning USA Today bestselling author, Nicole Evelina. Nicole is here to talk about how she discovered historical fiction, the hard work that is behind her success, and her latest forays into pop culture history. JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's you, why I moment? taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid, drawing stills Line of Ariel. On. I've got better things to do tonight than so die. jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater with him saying, I'm going to write home. I'm rather sense. impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. You know, yeah. throw some spaghetti yeah. against the wall. See this if it is sticks. George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for tuning in for over 120 episodes. Still can't believe how far this show has gone. If you want to reach a goal, it's always best to visualize them. And when it comes to the author side of me, if I was to visualize my author goals, it would be Nicole Evelina. Nicole is not only a USA Today bestselling author, she is also a multi-award winning author, has spoken at various conventions and conferences, including the one that I booked in 2017 when I was the vice president and conference chair of the Missouri Writers Guild. I knew that she had a lot to offer as a speaker, as an author, and sure enough, I was right. She wound up doing a terrific job while she was there, and uh, she has been constantly working, not stopping at all, and not not focusing on just one genre. She's not only um, become very prolific in historical fiction, but she's also gone into nonfiction and has also just recently gotten into pop culture with her latest with her latest book, A Cultural History of Sex in the City. And so if this journey does not inspire you authors, then I don't know what will. But it's my pleasure to introduce to you my friend, Nicole Evelina. Nicole, how are you? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me, George. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's whenever, when I put this show together, you were always one of the people that I knew that I had to get on here because you represent so much of what this show is all about. Someone whose work, someone who I knew needed to get out there and let the world know who they are because they have a very inspiring story to tell. And here you are, finally. Yay. <laughs> no, thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate it. It's it's an honor to be here. Oh, well, thank thank you so much for being here. So before we dive into uh, your whole history, you did just recently turn in the manuscript for uh, the cultural history of Sex and the City. Tell us a little bit about that, especially now with And Just Like That coming out and doing what it's doing. Yeah, it's kind of a project that I fell into. I'm a part of a ghostwriting group that I've actually never done any work for, but the uh, editor of the series from Rowan and Littlefield posted on the Facebook group of the ghostwriting group that they were looking to expand their um, cultural history of television section. And I was I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And he had posted a link to the books that that they had done before and just said, hey, if you're interested, let us know. And I looked at it and I'm like, well, this is this is definitely something different. Let me let me see where this goes. And so out of the ones they had listed that they were considering doing in the future, I said, hey, these are the ones I'm interested in. But if you're open to other ideas, here's a list of other shows that I think are culturally relevant. And here's why. So I gave them a list of probably like 10 different 
television shows and they said oh we want we want this one which is the sex in the city book and then they said can you combine a couple of these other ones and we'll talk about two different books and i said okay so i wrote a proposal and everything got accepted and yeah i fell into a a, a two-book deal that way so the other one is fierce females in television which is due next january so it'll be out either late 2023 or early 2024 And that one covers actually 10 different series, starting with Xena, Warrior Princess, going all the way through. I think the most recent is House of Cards. So, yeah. Yeah. So the Sex and the City book, um, it's like it's had a cultural history. So the first part of the book is talking about the main characters. So the women and the the men in their lives and Mm -hmm. kind of going through and analyzing the characters. I actually used Michael Hogg's technique of what is the character's character arc emotionally. So Mm -hmm. what is their wound? How do they transform by the end of the series to analyze who those characters are and what does it mean to relate to each one? And what do these, what do these characters say about society? So, and it's, it's interesting doing Sex and the City because the original series was 20 years ago. So you're right. both talking about what did it say back then? And also what is it still saying now for good or for bad? Because some things don't translate as well now because the world has changed. And that's really kind of what the second half of the book is about. It's more about the issues that Sex and the City covered. Not only sex, obviously, because that's in the title. And that's what the show is most known for. But what does it mean to be a group of female friends? Is the show a feministic? Um, The show very much has problems with representing both racial and sexual diversity. So, you know, how do we address that? What are the different examples? What would we say today? What's the lasting legacy of the show? So that's that's really what the book is about. And I was really surprised how much I had to say. And I, I think, honestly, I got the... I got the contract because I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who was such a fan of the show back in the day and and still am today. So it's a book written by a fan for fans. So it's not academic because that's what a lot of cultural analysis is. And the average person just can't relate to that. So Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that this one will have a tone that is kind of like you're having a conversation with a friend. Oh, that's great. That's, that's terrific. And have you been able, were you able to apply any of, and just like that in there? Because it seems yeah. like what that show is really kind of focusing on doing is changing its legacy, changing the legacy of the, of the original show, realizing how limited it was in terms of working with diversity, in terms of working with uh, sexuality. And like, I distinctly remember the boy, girl, boy, girl episode from season three, that the way, the way it was, the way it was, it was pulled off. It just didn't seem like they really knew exactly what it was that they were trying to do with that. But now it seems like there is a definite mission statement with this, with this new series. Have you been able to apply what's been going on to that? Yeah, there's actually in the Lasting Legacy chapter, I have an entire section on and just like that. It mostly focuses on the first two episodes because I felt like I didn't want to go any more in depth. Otherwise, it would then become an entire, you know, section about that show instead of Sex in the City. But I think the first two episodes are really representative of what the show is trying to do um, and, and what it's doing well and what it's not doing well. I use other examples from and just like that throughout the book where they're relevant But that's Mm -hmm. really the section where I I kind of, I analyze what is that show trying to do and has it been successful? Mm -hmm. So, and it's really interesting that it seems like fans 
have had a mixed reaction. It's like you either love it or you hate it. And I mean, I am kind of more in the not so much of liking it um, category <laughs> because I feel like the new show is very heavy handed. Yeah. I, I admire what they're doing. And, mm-hmm. and I think, but I think, of course, as a writer, I overanalyze everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I, it just, it just kind of feels almost, um, at times, it like it, it gets very, very close to that pandering level. And there are some times when it just completely falls over the cliff. And then sometimes it's able to realize what it's doing and pull itself back in. Yeah. I think the the episode with with Charlotte pointing out the Lisa's artwork, I thought was 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 very good. I thought yeah. that was a very good one. That was that was the, the right example of like, OK, you're getting it. You know, it's it's definitely it's definitely clicking. It definitely now was it now six episodes in. It feels more like Sex in the City with like a little extra with a little extra edge to it, which which I think which I think is interesting. Yeah, and I feel like that edge when it's not hitting you over the head, it's very reflective of where we are now, which is yeah. what Sex in the City was back in the day. It was very of the moment. And I just I feel like a lot of times they're trying too hard to be of the moment rather than letting the show do that naturally and and when yeah. it's at that edge that's exactly what it's doing is it's mm-hmm. it's just naturally reflecting what's going on the the zeitgeist if you will yeah yeah the 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 moment where charlotte says to miranda you're not pc you're not progressive enough yes and like that was the way that that was handled i actually liked the way that that was done because it was showing what it could be if it does fall off the cliff but then uh-huh. it winds up pulling itself back in. Right. So th- that, that was something I appreciated. Did you get to touch on the movies at all? Because those, especially <laughs> the second one, are quite, they, they seem to be the reason why they're doing what they're doing here, it seems. Yeah, the, I did. There's a section on the movies. It's, it's fairly short because obviously that's not where my focus is. Yeah. But yeah, I, the first movie wasn't, in my opinion, that great. No, but yeah. It was a heck of a lot better than the second one. I my problem <laughs> my problem with the first one is that they took this ending that they had and they took the natural what do I want to say progression of the characters and broke it apart just to have drama for a movie. At yeah. least that's what it, what it yeah. feels like for me. It's like exactly. I I absolutely agree with you, especially the whole thing with Miranda and Steve. Like I thought yes. that that was it was done strictly for drama's sake and it had nothing to do with the characters that we had known right. over the years and, and, and yeah as an author that's very important to me because and this is a point that i bring out in the book that regardless of whether you're doing a tv show a movie uh, whatever medium you make a promise to your viewers your readers whatever in the world that you build in the characters that you build that you will be consistent mm-hmm. and when you break that promise it's a betrayal to your, and I feel like that's what they did with the movies and to some extent with And Just Like That, depending on what issue you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the second movie, the thing that bothered me the most, besides the fact that the plot was absolutely ridiculous, um, <laughs> <laughs> the thing that bothered me the most is I felt like it had a lot of white savior complex mm-hmm. um, in there, especially when the, the scene that got me was when the women are doing karaoke in Abu Dhabi and no, I'm not making that up. If you haven't seen the movie, that really does happen. And they get up on stage and sing. They do, I'm woman, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> How tone deaf can you possibly be? Uh, yeah. And, it, it, that was where I lost it. I mean, yeah. I was just like, okay, I'm going to finish this, but 
you don't have me anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's kind of like when I was watching Failure to Launch, I got through like maybe the ha- the first half of it and then I was just like, but thankfully I didn't have to, have to, you know, like stick through it to write anything on it. So it was just like, all right, I'm done. Click. Right. <laughs> so and uh, and a big shout out actually to to the podcasters of We Couldn't Help But Wonder who were on this show like uh, several weeks ago talking about Sex in the City. So hey, Elise Castle and hi, Mike Jensen. I'm not sure if you've he- have heard that show yet, but if you haven't, it's no, fabulous. Oh, oh, you're going to love it. You are going to love it. Yeah. Mike is, is a Sex in the City veteran and Elise has never seen an episode. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. It takes you through the entire series. They're all, they're all caught up and they're now doing, and just like that, as it's being broadcast. So this is definitely a good time to jump into the, to the archives and start from the beginning. So for all of you who are Sex and the City fans, you definitely want to check that out. After you listen to this one, of course, but then, then just go into, go into your, go into your podcast app and look up. We couldn't help but wonder. You'll be glad you did. Now, one of the things that I always like to discuss on here is what I call the lightning bolt moment. And that's when you experience something, hear something, see someone, meet someone, whatever. And it makes you want to go in that direction that they're going and just say, that is the road I want to travel. That's the journey I want to be on. That's the kind of person I want to be. What was it with you in writing specifically that got you going in the first place? I I tell this story from time to time, and I always tell people to feel free to laugh, feel free to make fun, whatever. The thing that made me take my writing seriously was Twilight. And it's nothing wrong with that. It's such a cultural punching bag now, and, (laughs) and I get why. But in 2008, I was dithering around with a book I had been working on for, gosh, probably seven years, just. Wow. You know, as a hobby, that would that book would end up becoming Daughter of Destiny, which was my debut novel, the mm-hmm. first book in my Guinevere series. And it was one of those things that I just played with when I got bored. I, I was in college when I started it. I went to grad school, got my first job, all of those formative things. Mm-hmm. And when I read Twilight, I was like, first of all, I loved the series. I was a huge Twihard, except for Breaking Dawn. We don't talk about that book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> up until then. I mean, Sorry, I saw, Stephanie. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I saw all the, all the movies. I, I even saw the spoof Vampire Suck. I actually own a copy of it because I thought it was so that funny. That was actually, I was shocked <laughs> that I laughed as much as I did with that because it's done by, by uh, the same guys behind Epic Movie, Disaster Movie, Date Movie, and all the movies that I really just make a point to avoid. So the fact that uh, that I laughed as much as I did, I, I got to give them kudos. They knew how to work with that particular source material. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah. I read the series. And at the time, the story behind everything was Stephanie was this average woman. She sent off this manuscript and lo and behold, it got picked up. And if you look at the backstory, it's actually changed a little bit since then. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that was the story that inspired me. And I thought, well, if she can do this and write this great you know, series and, and go on to be this huge hit, I can too. So it was 2008 and I was probably about three fourths of the way into my first draft of mm-hmm. Daughter of Destiny. It wasn't called that at the time, but um, I, I, re- I decided, okay, I'm actually going to put some, some rigor behind this. And I made myself finish it. And then I did the whole okay, how does one become an author? And that's mm-hmm. how I found out you have to get an agent and you have to have a publisher and this is how the industry works. So that I really mark my my time as a serious author from January 2008, which was when I was reading those books and, and, and just got that 
huge inspiration. So Stephanie, thank you for, mm-hmm. for doing what you did in addition to entertaining me and giving me a book boyfriend and there everything you go. <laughs> else. You helped launch my career. Yeah, that's, and I am so glad that you said it the way that you did, because it's one thing that I have always made a point to say to everyone is that if there is someone who inspires you in some way, positively, creatively, Mm -hmm. you got to let them know that because you're not always going to have the opportunity Mm -hmm. to tell them that. Definitely. So I, I said, I've said this story several times before back in 2010, I got to meet Carrie Fisher. She was, she was doing wishful drinking on Broadway. We were living in New York at the time and my aunt got us tickets to go see it on Broadway. And it was a fabulous time and it was a terrific show. And I got to say, I got to say hello to her. She signed my playbills. I asked her a quick question regarding the Star Wars DVDs that she had done commentary on. And that was pretty much it. And I still kick myself to this day for not just simply saying, by the way, you're the first person I've ever met who's associated with Star Wars. And I wanted to say thank you because that series gave me everything. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do it and I'll never have that chance to do that again. So you have to let people know that. So the fact that you said it the way that you did is perfect. So yeah, Stephanie Meyer, thank you. Like I'm, I may not be a fan of twilight, but at the same time, I appreciate everything that that series has done for so many people. Definitely. So, so yeah. So, 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 you, you're reading the books and everything. You're getting inspired by the books. You dive in. You go ahead and, and finish that first book. What's it like getting that first one finished? What is that? What is that feeling like to you? Oh, it's an incredible rush. I mean, not only is it a confidence booster, it's you're almost like overawed by your own ability. And I don't mean that in a bragging way. I just mean mm-hmm. that in in the sense that you're like, oh my god, I wrote a book. Yeah. You know, I actually finished this regardless mm-hmm. of what happens, whether it ends up under your bed in a box or it ends up getting published. It's it's such a huge accomplishment to be able to say you've written a book. I mean, it's writing a book is a huge undertaking. And I don't think a lot of people who aren't writers understand that. I mean, it takes mm-hmm. usually, especially if it's your first book, years to yeah. actually do it because you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's you're you're taking everything that you've learned, whether it was in school or just from being a reader, and you're trying to synthesize it and put it back out in such a way that makes sense to somebody other than you. You're going through plot, you're going through character, you're going through setting, I mean, all kinds of things. And you're trying to be consistent as you go, you're trying to be entertaining. And it's 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 anybody who finishes a book deserves a huge amount of a round of applause because it's it's not easy, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, speaking as someone who is, who is currently on year four of getting, getting this third book in this trilogy finished. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. Like if it, for some reason, it, it always feels like whenever you're starting a new book, it feels like it's your first book all over again. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know? there. I mean, I go to start a new book when I went to start the, the Sex in the City book. I had this moment, I mean, and that's my ninth book. And I, I sat there and I went, oh God, can I do this? How do I do this? Do I have mm-hmm. anything to say? Where do I even start? And I was lucky that I could kind of 
cheat my way around the blank page because I had a detailed table of contents from my book proposal. So I just took the beginning of the book proposal and used that as the opening at first and got over not having anything on the page and kind of went from there. And then, of course, I went back and changed it as I found the structure and the voice of the book. Mm Mm-hmm. And and that's one thing that a lot of people, I think that they they don't, I mean, you just, you're just not exposed to it because you don't see books until they're finished. When you're reading a book, chances are good. The opening that you read that is so catchy and fantastic is not the first opening that the author, you know, wrote. It's probably the fourth or fifth at least. Mm -hmm. So, because we have to kind of find our voice. It's somebody called it writing your way into the, you usually write a lot of stuff that doesn't doesn't stay in the book because it doesn't need to be there. But we had to get ourselves into the story because in the first draft of writing, you're really telling the story to yourself. Mm -hmm. And once then once what the story is, then you start telling the story to the audience. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And thankfully when, when, uh, when you're working on a sequel or in, in my case, the conclusion of a trilogy, you have, you have elements of those first two books to play off of. Definitely. And when those when those come in, oh man, it's it's like that moment in, in Super Mario Brothers where you get that star and uh-huh. you and you're just running through the entire maze. Like that's that's how it felt during uh, during the time that I was that I was working on chapter one of part three. I really felt that sort of that sort of rush because I had something mm-hmm. to go by, and now it's just like okay, now comes the original stuff that's that is that may call back to those to those uh first two books but this is something completely different and that's where i feel like everything is getting kind of rocky just kind of i gotta pave that road first in order to in order to successfully drive on it that's a great metaphor yeah i just just came up with that so so apparently 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 there i'm more of a writer than i thought so (laughs) (laughs) so 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 what was so what wound up being like the fate of Daughter of Destiny? Because I I know what happened to it. I know, you right. know like the the heights that it reached. But tell us about how it got there. Yeah, it was definitely not an overnight thing. And and honestly, most most quote unquote success stories aren't. It it was a long road. I rewrote that book probably. I mean, not completely, but significantly, many, many times, I would say at least a dozen times before Mm -hmm. I finally got it right. And part of that is because when you start out writing, you start out imitating authors that you, Mm -hmm. and eventually you find your own voice. Yeah. And I queried it in the beginning. And by the way, for those who are in the publishing industry, querying is when you send um, an email, it used to be a letter to an agent saying, Hey, I have this book. Would you be interested in reading it? And that's really the first step in everything. I queried it way too soon. It wasn't ready. It needed to go through lots of more um, rounds of editing. Mm. Uh, It took me two years to get my first agent. And that's a lot of rejection. And there were times that I questioned why I was, why am I doing this? Am I good enough? All of the things that all of us wonder when you're doing something, whether it's job hunting or whatever, where you can get rejected. And, excuse me. Mm -hmm. I had my agent for two years. She tried to sell the book. We got really close three times. We went to acquisitions, which is the last step before you're actually offered a traditional publishing contract. Mm-hmm. Um, three, yeah, three different times and uh, with big houses. But everybody just said, well, she's unknown and it's Arthurian legend. And we haven't had good luck with that in the past. Mm. So... They never, not to say that the book was perfect, because it wasn't. I mean, there are things if I could go back now and change, I would. But 
<clears throat> but so the, the book didn't really go anywhere that way. I ended up parting ways with my agent after two years. And that was the hardest conversation I ever had to have. But it was just the relationship just wasn't working anymore. And mm. I decided, okay, I'm going to try to get another agent. At the time, I had a book called Madam Presidentess that I was working on. It's about, it's historical fiction. It's about Victoria Woodhull, the first woman who ran for president in the U.S. in 1872. And she really did. And I really wanted that book to come out. I, at that point, it was 2014, 2015. I really wanted the book to come out during the 2016 election cycle because it was already pretty obvious at that point that Hillary Clinton was going to get the nomination right. for the Democrats. And... <clears throat> Being in communications as my day job, I knew if I could tie my book into something in the news, I would be much more likely to get publicity mm -hmm. around it. And they're really, I am going back to Daughter of Destiny. There's a point to all of this. So I, I had a limited period of time where I could query other agents and still get the book published in the time frame that I was hoping to, um, because traditional publishing takes a long time. Right. And so I ended up getting interest, but no offers. So because mm. of that, I decided what I've had friends who have literally made millions of dollars in self-publishing. I said, I'm, I'm going to give this a go because my agent had already shopped around at the time. I had three other books, a daughter of destiny, Camelot's queen, which was the second book in the Guinevere uh, series. And then I had right. a contemporary romance called been searching for you. And she had shopped those around. So even any new agent wouldn't have been able to do anything with those. So, okay, I'm going to self-publish them. So I did, I put out in 2016, I put out, Four books in seven months. Those are books that were already written. So they just yeah. needed to be edited and the the business behind the publishing. So, mm -hmm. you know, please don't think I wrote that many books in that time period. Oh, no, no. <laughs> um, but that that was how Daughter of Destiny got out. So it's a it's a complicated story, but it ended up as first book in a trilogy. I finished the trilogy probably two, three years after that. And when mm -hmm. I had the full set, I put it together as one book so that if you wanted to buy all of it just in, in, in a doorstop of a book, you could. And I ended up hitting the USA Today bestseller list when I got a book book. Wow. So, oh, you got the, you yeah. got the book bub deal. Awesome. That's, yeah. Yes. I and was, I was so, I remember I, when I got my book bub deal, I could like, I can see that USA Today chart. I didn't get there, but I did at least get, get enough on Amazon US and Canada to be labeled an international bestseller. So, so cool. I, got, I got that. <laughs> so oh. you know, that, that I was, I was happy to get. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. USA today. That's the big one. That's the one that I, I would love, love, love to get. Yeah. And who knows, who knows what, what the future may bring. So, but that's, that's terrific that you were able to do that and just really kind of really run with it. It's, it's, it's something really, it, it, it's really something when it comes to publishing, because back in 2001, I had the Complete Idiot's Guide to Publishing Science Fiction, and there was maybe like a paragraph about self-publishing, and it was all simply, don't do it. It's a last-ditch effort for authors. You'll destroy your career. You'll, you'll look desperate, and you're paying money for people to see it, et cetera, et cetera, and, and that's it. And then seven years later, they have the Complete Idiot's Guide to Self-Publishing. So. <laughs> That tells you how things change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's and that was 2008. The Kindle really hadn't come into its own yet. Right. So once the Kindle came into its own, man, that the the whole self publishing market blew up. So so you were able to get in. You're 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 getting in not in early time in self publishing. Mm -hmm. No, I um, so 2016. so so during that time you were able 
with that, like with this crowded market as it is, you were able to make a name for yourself, which I think is is fabulous. So with that in mind, like this was 2016. So like when the when the books had come out, right? The book bub yes. deal. Mm-hmm. Well, and no, then there was a couple of years ago, probably I think it's three years ago this July. So okay. that was much, much later. Okay. But the books mm-hmm. were out like during during the time that I was able to connect with you yes. to speak at the Missouri Writers Guild yes. conference. And so first of all, I gotta ask, how was your experience doing that? Oh my God, it was so much fun. Yeah. I really, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I met some some dear people that day. Derek Kent and Sherry, yeah. excuse me. Sherry was actually the um keynote speaker. The keynote speaker. Yep. And oh my God. They they just have been such great support. It's it's I, I mean, I meet new people at every conference that I go to. And and any any writers that are out there, if you can afford it, don't go into debt for it. But if you can afford it, go to as many conferences as you can once this whole COVID mess is over with. I oh, mean, yeah. even, even attending them virtually is, is great too. It's it's not the same, but you will meet so many people. I mean, this past summer, I went to my sixth historical novel society conference virtually. Wow. And I mean, I made new friends. I I connected with old ones. I mean, it's it's not the same as being able to hug them and sit in a bar and have a drink and and just chat. Which but, was great. Which was a great experience. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually at that conference, I also at your conference, Jordan. Well, it's not your conference, but the one that you invited me to. Yeah. I also met Steve Wigenstein, mm-hmm. who is just a dear, dear friend of mine. He um, was a finalist for a Pen, Pen Faulkner Award this year. Shout out to Steve because he's fabulous. It's it's these friendships and this support that is so amazing in the in the writing community to me, and and the conferences to me are really the locus for that. It's where you meet. It's where you catch up. It's where you you just you share war stories, good and bad. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and and speaking there was a lot of fun. I was actually trying to remember while you were talking earlier what I spoke on, and I believe it was tropes in romance writing, which is yeah. interesting because I only have the one romance book, and that's I, I do plan on on writing more in the future. It's just that's not where my focus is right now. Right, so, right. Yeah, it was it was just it was a great experience. Thank you. Oh, thank you for for being there. Like, I mean, it was, it was, it was kind of difficult, really, kind of grabbing, getting as as many people as as I could to be a part of this. And I, I would love it if it was promoted a little bit better. You know? mm-hmm. But but at the same time, I mean, like we were hit with with every possible. That was um, flooding. I forgot about that, that. There was there was flooding. It was going up against the Oklahoma Writers Conference. And they have like, they had basically that corner of the market on that particular weekend, but that oh, was Lord. the only one that we could get because the next weekend was Mother's Day. And that would have, yeah, that would have taken so enough. many people out of it. Right. So it was, there was so, there was so much going against it, but somehow like, you know, we were able to get enough people there to have a, a suitable conference and Everyone, I'm glad to say that even though we had a low attendance, everyone who was there had a great time. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I learned so much that every conference that I go to, not that I ever think I know it all, but it, it, it amazes me how much I don't know, yeah. you know, that I realize in going to different workshops and learning from different people's experience that I always come back with a to-do list about a mile long. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's real. It's it was really something. It's really something to be a part of that. And if if a few authors, if you're out there and you're looking for like any sort of like the next you know big adrenaline rush, chair a conference 
and see what and see what that does for you. See what that does for your blood pressure. So so you so speaking of all the different uh, the different venues that you've gone through, one that I was really inspired by, and I was really was really looking forward to learning more about because you've had you know really good success on this platform is Tailflick. Yeah. Yeah, Tell us a little bit about that, because those those of you who don't know, Tailflick is is a site that basically is used as putting a spotlight on all different types of projects that are in that have potential to be turned into either big screen or small screen adaptations, and it's a it's it's a really good platform to really kind of see what what your show what your potential project is made of and. I'm glad to say that I was able to put from Parts Unknown up there, and it's been listed as a tail flick pick. So, oh, congratulations! I didn't so, know that. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully the right person will start taking a look at it, and maybe who knows? But who knows if something's going to come come of that? I know it's going to be uh, my next podcast because I'm doing a hybrid of audiobook podcast. Reading this book is basically just like, all right, if you guys aren't, if you guys don't see this, if you, if you're not able to see it or whatever, fine. I'll just read it to you. <laughs> just like, cause I really believe in this project. I want to get it out there. And so this is my next step of doing that. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah. Good luck. Thanks. So, uh, so tell us about your experience with Tailflick because it was your experience that prompted me to look at that site in the first place. Sure. Tailflick, I actually found out about it when it was being formed. It was some kind of Publishers Weekly type article or something like that that I saw. And it was really interesting because it was being formed as a um, connection company for um, independent authors with people in the TV and film industry. Mm-hmm. And the the founder, um, Yuri, or Uri, I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced, Singer, was with Apple, I believe, and a couple of other really big name companies. So I was like, okay, these guys are legit because there are, as an indie author, there are so many companies out there, whether they're contests or we're going to turn you into a, into a movie or whatever that aren't legitimate. I was really, really wary and really did my research before I decided to commit, especially because you're committing a small uh, fee, relatively small per year to have your book listed. Mm -hmm. And what you're paying for is the access to, or having your book accessed by the, the people in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So you're paying for the visibility, basically. And so I decided, okay, what? Well, I'll try it for a year. It's it's not that expensive. And we'll see what comes out of it. Well, I definitely did not expect three months later to get a phone call from them saying, hey, we have uh, this company who's really interested in optioning Madam Presidentess. Would you be willing to talk mm-hmm. with them? And I looked the company up. I was expecting, oh, it's going to be this small, indie little company, which there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that in my mind, that was all me as the author. That was all I thought I could have access to. It was this Mm -hmm. huge company that worked with A-list stars like, oh, I can't think of his name now. Ted Siegel, the guy who was on How I Met Your Mother. Oh, wow. And I mean, you just, you look through at their clients and you just, you're like, I know this person. Oh, that's Stanley Tucci. Oh, that's Adrian Grenier. Oh, that. And I mean, Emily Blunt was on there. And I mean, Mm -hmm. she's, I'm a huge, huge fan of hers. I actually cast her in my head as one of my one of my characters in the Guinevere series. So I was like, oh my God. And they ended up <laughs> optioning uh, the book, which means that they um, paid me a small amount um, mm-hmm. for the right to take the book all around Hollywood for a year 
and mm-hmm. say, hey, we really think this project will have legs. So they could go to screenwriters, they could go to directors, producers, actors, whoever. Mm-hmm. And we we got we we got a lot of really good feedback and a lot of interest. It it just there happened to be another project which is actually still in the works that was further on down the road at the time. So nobody else wanted to compete against that. So it's uh, so much in publishing and 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 getting your things adapted is timing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Just to to set expectations, 99% of books that are optioned never get made into anything. I know that sounds depressing, but it's it's not. It's you don't know how many days that I was having a rough day in my day job or whatever, and I just thought to myself, I have a book floating around Hollywood. And that yep. was enough to keep me going. It's 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 an amazing experience that as an indie author, I never thought I would have. Mm-hmm. And it's something that is forever going to be on my bio, regardless of what happens in the future. It's it's the thing I love about Tail Flick is that and and if, if they actually um, came to my house and filmed me at one point for a testimonial. So you'll hear me say the same thing if you ever come across that on their website. I've seen that video. Yeah, like that was that was the thing yeah. that really kind of propped me up. Like I was flipped just just going through Facebook, and all of a sudden, like I see, oh, it's Nicole. Oh, she's on an ad. Yeah. What is this ad? And then I click on the ad. I'm just like wow, what is this? And that all of a sudden really got my attention. So yeah. Yeah. And what I, what's great about, what's great about, about getting those sort of option deals is that just getting the option is enough to get a mention in say like Hollywood reporter or variety. Variety. Yeah. Yep. So that right there, all of a sudden it was just like, your your name is being read by producers somewhere. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's, it, the fact that as indie authors, we don't have a publishing house behind us. Publishing mm-hmm. houses, when you're traditionally published, they have people whose sole job is to try to sell the rights to your books, yeah. um, to Hollywood. When you're an indie author, you don't have that. So mm-hmm. to have a company like Tailflick that will will give you equal footing in the industry with traditionally published books is is so huge. And that's that's yeah. why I'm I'm a huge advocate of tail flick. I mean, even if I hadn't gotten the option, I would still be singing their praises because it, they're, they're doing something nobody else is doing. And I mean, they've mm-hmm. been in business for five, six years now, probably. And I still have not seen, and I, I could be wrong, but I have not seen another company who's doing what they're doing. I think, I think there are a couple that are trying, but none of them I, I see like have the sort of success or like, or clout. That yes. tail flick seems to have because a lot of a lot of the other ones, it just seems like they're trying to do what they were doing, but they don't have the resources to back it up. Yeah. Well, and it's it's I think because Yuri had so many connections to begin with mm-hmm. that helped the whole that helped the company in general. And it wasn't just him. Some I know some of his other executives whose names I don't remember off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. They also had connections. So when you're starting, it's it's like anywhere else. When you're starting from the ground up, like some other companies are, it's much, much harder. I mean, it's like breaking into publishing when you don't know anybody and you don't, it, it's just, you're building your fan base from zero versus yeah. where I am now as an author, several years, six years in, I have a bigger, I mean, not huge by any means, but a bigger fan base that I can go to when I, you know, mm-hmm. have something and it's, it's, it's the same principle. So yeah yeah they're they're very fortunate that they were founded by people who know the industry and know what they're doing so that's always always a good thing (laughs) if you're gonna start start something like this you better know what you're doing (laughs) 
So with everything you got going, everything with there's the op, there's the option deal, and then there then there's USA Today, and then you're able to do a lot of different speaking engagements as well. How have you been able to really kind of parlay everything you've gotten into into getting up on the stage to do to do those kinds of events? Yeah, it's it's I I love to talk. If you can't tell, I, I talk why do you think I got you? <laughs> I talk your ear off for three hours if you'd let me. Having and I am not an extrovert. I am very much an introvert. But mm-hmm. when I talk about something that I know and that I'm passionate about, I am so totally comfortable with being in front of an audience. Um, yes. Yep. And, right there and with you. I think those two things are the key: your subject and you're comfortable and passionate, and that mm-hmm. comes through. The passion is what makes an engaging speaker, yeah. uh, regardless of the subject. You could talk about watching paint dry, and if it was your thing you could get people interested. I think just a lot of what I've done, my other successes have, like you said, put my name out there and they've gotten me in front of people who have asked me to speak um, at different events. And there are also things where I'll see a call for proposals. And if it's something I'm interested in that I think I'm even vaguely qualified for, I'll go ahead and put a proposal out there. That's a huge part of being an indie author as well is keeping your eyes open for opportunities and then going for them when you see them. You may not get them, but that's the worst thing that's going to happen. And because it's just, yeah. But back to the subject of speaking. Yeah, I ended up speaking at an international Arthurian conference. That was my first academic conference. I do not have my PhD. So if you want to talk about feeling overwhelmed and like the smallest fish in the room, Mm -hmm. yeah, go to an academic conference as a non-academic, as an independent (laughs) researcher. Um, And it's, it's, it's not that, you know, people don't have any kind of negative attitude or anything like that, but it's me feeling like, oh my God, who am I to, to be speaking with all of these people who have their PhD and all of this training? And, but I actually ended up, I spoke about a nonfiction, my very first nonfiction book, which was The Once and Future Queen Guinevere in Arthurian Legend. Mm-hmm. And it basically traces the evolution of the character of Guinevere from her first appearance in Celtic literature, all the way through 2016, which was when the book was published. Wow. And I go on the thesis that Guinevere changes based on society's views of women over time. And so I spoke on that and I ended up being asked after my speech to um, contribute a chapter to a book on ethics in Arthurian legend. Again, you want to talk about feeling overwhelmed and like the imposter syndrome. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, now I'm writing for an academic publication. I don't know how to do this because academic writing is completely different from other types of nonfiction. And I mean, these, these two... God love my two editors. Both of them are, are professors at Lindenwood University here in St. Louis. They had to like take me by the hand through yeah. what was probably to them a terrible first draft. <laughs> <laughs> and they led me through several rounds of revisions. And now the book is in front of publishers. So hopefully. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So hopefully that will be that will be happening. But uh, going back to, to me, that story kind of encapsulates several things we've been talking about. Don't be afraid to take care take a risk. I, I, at that day, I, I'm very rarely nervous when I speak, but yeah. I was scared to death. Mm-hmm. I was like, these people actually know what they're talking about and they're listening to me talk. <laughs> <laughs> what if I say something wrong? You yeah. Know, there were things that I said that they disagreed with, but they entered into a dialogue with me. Wow. Coming from the perspective of like one guy was a medievalist. So that was his specialty. And here, you know, I am talking about a book I've read twice. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and so we went back and forth and it, it's 
the the writing community is so supportive, mm-hmm. even when you don't agree. There's that civil discourse there, and and yeah. to be willing to admit when you're wrong, and and say, well, from my layperson's perspective, this is how I took it, but I understand from an academic perspective that this is how it is studied and this is how it is interpreted. It, it's mm-hmm. huge. I'm sorry, I've gotten yeah. off the subject. <laughs> Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Like that's, it's it's actually it's actually something that I have uh, have noticed a real good real good connection with what you're doing with what everything you've been doing because it seems like everything is leading to the next thing, and yeah. it just seems like this is the ultimate example of an Excelsior journey because every step you're doing, you're improving yourself, and you're improving your status, and improving you know, like who you are as, as an author and who you are as a storyteller and who you are as a speaker. And so all of this is just, it's, it's evolution. So yes, that's very much. Yeah. Evolution of Evelina. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So I'm curious to know what, uh, what your take is on the 1981 John Borman movie Excalibur, because that was what, that was what inspired Excelsior in the first place. Oh, wow. I, I would not be where, my, I would not have these books if I did not see that movie. That, well, I, I get that. I do. Yeah. Um, I have my own Arthurian story behind. I wouldn't have written Guinevere if it wasn't for that book. I do have to, to answer your question. I have to say, I have not seen that movie, believe it or not. Really? I, oh, yeah. yeah. I haven't been as focused on the TV movie adaptations. I've seen some, mm-hmm. but not all. I've been more focused on the literature. And that isn't because I believe one is better than the other. It's mm-hmm. just, you only have so much time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, well, absolutely. I mean, like Guinevere was born as a literary figure, so it's yeah. o- it only makes sense to track her evolution through that. If you go through, if you start bringing in elements of film and television, then you're going off on one tangent after another, and you all of a sudden you have a four hour presentation. Right. So I get it. You know, I I definitely get it because you if you cover Excalibur, you got to cover like First Night and yes. all the different King Arthur books that are movies that are out there, and I know there were some. Before, like you got to cover Camelot with with Bob Goulet. So you know, there are a lot of different directions. All of a sudden, that you would have to go go in. There is if when when I won't say if when that book gets published, there will be a chapter on um, the movie and TV versions. There's there's somebody who's an expert in that stuff who's also contributing a chapter. So oh, perfect. Yes, be sure be sure to check it out. (laughs) I definitely will. I definitely will. Now, say there are people, and there are a lot of people that want to go on the same path that you're on uh-huh. and and want to reach the levels of success that you have already reached. What would you say to them would be the first step that they should take? Because I mean, this is the beginning of a new year. So everyone's got their new year's resolutions. My big thing that I wanted to focus on for January is to be around people that inspire me. And here you are. Uh-huh. And so what, you know, like what do what would you say to them? Like they say, my my New Year's resolution is to is to become an author, or like or get this get this book out there like this. What if what would you say would be like the first step that they should take in order to make those things happen? The first thing I would say is that no two authors are going to have the same journey. Mm-hmm. You can look at other people, and I highly recommend that you look at other people whose whose paths you want to follow and see what they've done and see how you can imitate what they've done. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 never going to work the exact same way for you as it worked for me. It didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. Right. But it it always starts with the passion in my mind. 
tap into what you're passionate about, whether you're writing the book, you're selling the book, either way, you're always your own best advocate. Definitely do what you're passionate about because it will come through and other yeah. people will pick up on that. As far as becoming an author, write the best book you possibly can. Mm -hmm. I, I realize that that seems very generic, but it's it's the starting place. If you don't have a good product, you're just you're not going to go anywhere. And and know that that doesn't happen with a first draft. Yeah, it, it never does. I don't care if you're Stephen King. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe at this point in his career, he can write a pretty clean first draft. But how many first drafts has he written? And, and you do get better as you go along. Better you get faster. It's, it's, it's just like anything else. You learn as you go and every bit of writing that you do is practice. Nothing, even the stuff you end up, by the way, don't ever throw anything away from your writing. If you cut it. Amen. I will it. definitely say that. <laughs> yes. Keep it in another file because you never know where you're going to use it. But you, you really learn. If you want to be a published author, learn everything you can about the industry, about your options, because there are so many options now. There are different self-publishing routes. There are different types of presses. If you're going to want to go traditional, which I am now a hybrid author, for those who aren't familiar with that, that means that I started out as an indie author and I am now under traditional contract. None of the books have come out yet, but I'm under contract. So it, it still counts. Definitely just don't discount any opportunity. Try things. It, it's a lot of getting involved in any industry is, is trial and error. There are things you're going to fail at. There are things that aren't going to work out the way you thought they would, but don't be discouraged by that. Another bit of advice is just keep going. Yeah. I actually, at one point, <clears throat> several years ago, got the word right, W-R-I-T-E, tattooed mm -hmm. on my wrist nice. um, because I figured that way. Well, first of all, I love tattoos. And secondly, I figured that way I can't ever stop. I can't give up because it is mm -hmm. literally ingrained into my body. That's a great hack right there. That's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's not for everybody, but no. <laughs> it worked for me. And yeah, that's the top part of my wrist. And the other side, underside of my wrist says create because it's, I, I'm the type of, of writer who, if I don't write, I, I'm not happy. Like it's, it's, I just have this natural drive. Mm -hmm. and, and not everybody does. Some people are motivated in other ways, but find what it is that compels you and tap into it. I mean, that that's what keeps me going is, mm -hmm. is, is always a quest for more and better. And I don't necessarily mean like financial success. I mean, that'd be fabulous. But for me, it's, I, I, I do what I do partially for education as well. There are stories, so many stories out there that I feel like need to be told, whether they're from a different perspective, like Guinevere, because we're used to Merlin and, and Arthur, right. or they're stories of women you've never heard of. I just, they're my contribution to society. They're, they're, they're my legacy. And that's why I do it. I don't care if only one person reads one of my books. That's one life that is, is different because of something that I've done. And if you can find what it is within you that, that will keep you going in an industry that is very, very tough, you're going to be a success. Excellent. Excellent. And before we wrap it up, one thing that I was, I've always been really, really admiring of, of your work is the amount of research that you do, considering that you write so much historical fiction. Yeah. Now, what do you have to say as a tip for those who want to dive into this into this genre, mm -hmm. but aren't sure exactly how much work to really kind of put into it? Historical fiction, to me, now, granted, I've not written in every genre, so I say this, take it with a grain of salt. To mm -hmm. me, historical fiction is one of the hardest fiction 
genres to write because of the amount of research. It's not that there's not research that goes into every genre. It's Mm -hmm. just you're learning a whole new time period and you're learning it in such a way that you're trying to recreate it realistically for an audience who also doesn't know it. So it's, it's historical fiction writers take their research very, very seriously because Mm -hmm. we feel like that we have a duty to both history and to our readers to tell the story as accurately as we possibly can Mm-hmm. acknowledging that the story we are telling is fiction. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting balance. I would say just learn as much as you can about your time period, your location, your subject, regardless of whether you're writing about a real person or you're just you're setting a fictional story in an actual time period and place. Mm-hmm. Um, because you as the author have to know everything your character would know. It doesn't mean that that's going to all end up on the page. It won't. Like 2% of the research that you do will actually end up on the page. But it will inform every decision that you make from the color of something to or the weather. No bit of research goes unused, whether you realize it or not. It's somewhere synthesized in your brain. The Mm -hmm. best place to start, honestly, for me is always to go through Amazon and look and see what's available on my subject. I use it as kind of like a catalog because they don't have it. It doesn't exist. (laughs) Right. As far as publicly available material goes, there's a whole other section of like theses and dissertations and things like that, that obviously you wouldn't find there. But yeah, just learn everything you can and network with other historical fiction authors and read. The more you read, the more you learn subtle cues and expectations within the, within a genre. Mm -hmm. Um, and the more you talk to other authors who are doing the same thing, you'll learn little little tips and tricks and and just have the support to get through six months to several years worth of research, depending on what, you, what depth you choose to go to through and what you already know. Historical fiction, is it's not a short writing process. I, I, I use romance as an example, not to denigrate it in any way, but I know several romance authors who can write a book in a month or so. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to do that with historical fiction. It's going to take you a long time. It's it's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. Yeah. And where can my listeners find you on social media? Oh, gosh. I'm all over the place. Facebook. I have both a profile and a page. Nicole Evelina author. Same for Instagram. Twitter. I'm just Nicole. Same for Pinterest. I, I love Pinterest, by the way. That's yeah. a very underutilized tool for authors. I need to get back on it because I have a couple of casting call boards yes. set up on mine. And I feel like I need to go back to those and just kind of freshen them up a bit. And it's fun for fans, too, just to kind of see what's what's going on in your brain. I mean, mm-hmm. I do it with other authors. I'm like, oh, who did they envision for this and that? And what does this look like? Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of pretty much all over the place. I have a TikTok, but I've never used it. I'm kind of more learning on that one. I also have a website. It's NicoleEvelina.com. So N-I-C-O-L-E-E-V-E-L-I-N-A. So mm-hmm. you're going to have two E's there in the middle, .com. There you go. There you go. And what Nicole said was absolutely correct. You got to find what it is that drives you, what what makes you passionate, what makes you want to contribute to that to that world in a creative fashion and just go for it. Passion is everything. If you don't have the passion, if you're just doing it for just because that genre is popular, if you're doing it just because you think that you're just going to make a buck out of it, then it is not going to go anywhere. You need that passion. You need that drive. And that is what is going to propel you forward. I really, really hope that all of you are feeling the same sort of passion that I am 
<laughs> especially after listening to Nicole tell the story of her journey. And if you are not inspired by Nicole's journey, then I honestly don't know what will inspire you. So for Nicole Evelina, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward, and I will see you next week. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com. <laughs>